Well, they told me right before uh, the services started, he said, I won't be in the auditorium. He said, I'll be in the church, but I won't be here. And what I heard when he said that was, oh, I had a 25-minute message prepared. It might go now a little longer. Probably not. I'm going to talk tonight, uh, preach tonight about a uh, wonderful, wonderful topic. Uh, I'm going to read for about the first eight minutes of two documents that I've taken. It's called The Promise. is is from a series called Preaching the Word Commentary. And then I'm going to read a single page on the ESV devotional Psalter. And it sets the stage for uh, for Psalm 89 because in reality... What Psalm 89 is, is a commentary on the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. Let me just read this to you. It's going to take about seven or eight minutes, I think. The Bible's radical and powerful message is not simply that God exists, not merely that He's the creator of all that is. Of course, the Bible does teach these important truths, but if that's uh, is all we understand, we will remain confused and will uh, respond to God and will not respond to God rightly. Furthermore, the Bible is more than an account of God's particular and purposeful actions in history, guiding the remarkable course of history or of Israel in the Old Testament and working in the life of Jesus Christ in the New. Again, the Bible certainly does tell the remarkable story of God's involvement in the history of the world that he created. But even if we know that record well, we may still have missed the heart of the Bible's message and be mistaken in our response to God. To take this line of thinking one step further, it is even inadequate to realize that the Bible is God's own message about who he is, his creation of all that it is, and his acts in world history. The Bible is God's word to us about all of these things, but it's much, much more than that. It's impossible, or it is possible, to understand and believe all of the things that have been mentioned and not yet know what the Bible is really all about. It is a case of missing the forest for the truths. The golden thread that holds the whole Bible together, the central message that makes sense of all the details is simply this. God has promised. His promise is not like mine or yours. God has promised. The Bible is valuable for the wealth of information it contains about many things. But the Bible is of ultimate worth because in it, God makes his promise. The Bible tells us what God has promised, what he has already done in faithfulness to his promise, what he will yet do, and what the implications of his promise are for human life. Unless we see that everything in the Bible is related to God's promise, we miss the point. Once we begin, or once we believe, God's promise, 
The Bible comes to life because we read and listen to grow in our knowledge of the God who promises. Our faith, hope, and love are nourished by God's promise, which comes to us in the words on the pages of the Bible as those words are breathed to us by God's own Spirit, who powerfully convinces us of His faithfulness. What is that one promise? Well, there are various ways to express it. Uh, God has promised to bless the creation He's made in humankind, whom He has made in His image. He has promised to do this through a great nation descended from Abraham. The promise has begun to, uh, to be fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as people from every nation are put right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the vision of a great multitude from every nation rejoicing before God's throne points to the final realization of the promise. Those who know and believe God's promise see all things in a brilliant new light. Life and death, prosperity and suffering, beauty and ugliness, love and hate, hope and despair. How is it that the promise to bless the nations of the world through a great nation descended from Abraham was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ? Put that another way. How is it that Jesus fulfills the promise made to Abraham about a great nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed because of Abraham? And then we jump to Jesus, but we've missed a very key link if we do that. At the risk of oversimplifying, we can say that the purpose of the Old Testament is to provide the links between the promise we hear in Genesis with Abraham and the fulfillment announced in the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most important of those links, here it is, this is the golden link that links Abraham with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's simply this, King David. <clears throat> In this sense, David is the central human figure in all the Bible. I say human figure because we know the Lord Jesus, uh, that the Lord Jesus is human and divine, of course. He's the, he's the crucial link between Abraham and Jesus. David's place in the unfolding story of the Bible is a decisive step in God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. We only understand David in the light of that promise. But then, as we also will see, God reiterated his promise to David in terms that prepare us for its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus must be understood in the light of God's promise as it was made to David. I hope that I'm not making this sound too complicated, because it's not. God made his promise to Abraham. He spelled that promise out more fully to David. When we see God's promise to David fulfilled in Jesus, we see how Jesus fulfills the promises to Abraham, or the promise to Abraham. It's thrilling to see, as Paul put it as uh, in a slightly different context, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, 
and his uh, inscrutable, how are inscrutable are his ways. Now I have just a short, another uh, one more left to read, and that's from the Psalter in Psalm 89. Perhaps when you read the Psalms that recount God's promises to David, you feel a bit removed. After all, it was about 2,800 years ago when uh, God told Nathan the prophet to tell David these words about 700 years before Christ, about that time, maybe a little longer. How did God's actions toward a single king that long ago speak to me? Well, perhaps I see who God is and how he acts, and I'm encouraged by that, but I don't myself enjoy the promises and blessings of David, you might think. One key to understanding the Old Testament, however, is the principle of corporate solidarity. Simply put, in the biblical worldview, the one stands for the many, and the many are represented by the one. The king of Israel, in other words, represented the people. As went the king, so went the people. The whole nation of Israel had a vested interest, therefore, in the flourishing of their king. <clears throat> now this, uh, and, and this principle of corporate solidarity stretches past the time of ancient Israel into all of human history. Everyone is born in Adam. At conversion, our fundamental identity is transferred over to Christ. And as goes Christ, so go we. Consider, therefore, the significance of Psalm 89 and the way it cries out for the Davidic kingship to be blessed and great national distress. As the last part of this uh, psalm, you get the uh, verse 38, and it looks like all the promises that the psalmist has been uh, grateful for, he thinks all of a sudden that the Lord has left, and we'll see why that is. Do you begin to see how deeply relevant the Davidic throne is to your own life? Jesus was the final Davidic heir, according to 2 Timothy 2.8 and Matthew 1.1. He was the one in whom all the Davidic promises came to decisive fulfillment. He is the king, the leader of God's people, whose throne truly will never come to an end. And if you trust in Christ... His fate belongs also to you. You will share in His resurrection, in His glory, and in His rule. Isn't that something? I think we often forget that. We're saved, and sometimes we perhaps leave it at that. We're saved, I know, you know, when I pass on, I'm going to... Uh, to be with the Lord, and that's a wonderful thing, but it's much, much more than that. The um, the hymn that is often sung, uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness, says that, Great is thy, faith, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. It's taken from uh, James, is it not? Where, where uh, God doesn't change. You and I may not want to change, but... Because we are humans, we do. We're not able to always pull off the promises that we may make. We want to be faithful in various things, but sometimes we're not able uh, to pull off the, uh, the, uh, uh, the faithfulness. I have several things to look at. Look at Psalm 89. It's a masculine 
which is a, a, probably a musical term, a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. And the first four verses is, uh, he is speaking about his faithfulness to David. And verses three and four are a direct quote from the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. So I'm going to read the first four verses. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I stand, for I said, stand, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. That's key. Look who did the choosing. David was chosen by God. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. You see, in this first section right here, like I said, it's a direct quote uh, concerning the covenant. And we see how, how faithful God is. The second thing we'll look at, look in verse 5 through verse 8, we see God's faithfulness is praised in the heavens. We, the scripture talks about heaven and earth. It, heavens is everything beside earth. It's the, uh, it's the uh, uh, stellar space. It's everything that was created by God. Look what it says in verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Who are the holy ones? Well, the angels, the seraphim, the uh, cherubim, uh, whoever else that he's created, the archangels are there. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? <laughs> and who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness around you. So you see what the angels are doing? The angels are praising him for something that we often don't do. This is a rebuke, I think, sometimes to our own weak faith. The reality and the truth is that he is praised all the time by the heavenly host and by the heavenly beings. If you look at down through verses 9 through 13, we see uh, God's faithfulness on earth. Verse 9 says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. It's almost impossible to read that verse without thinking of the Lord sleeping in a boat, is it not? A hurricane comes up. The winds are howling and the waves are lapping over the boat. And the fishermen who are professional fishermen, they weren't sissies. They weren't landlubbers. They were they were men who were used to rugged weather on that sea that the winds could come up at any time. And it was so ferocious and so bad that they were scared. So they interrupt the Lord, as they often did. They would interrupt him when he was, uh, uh, was given a speech or when he was teaching. And here he is sleeping, and they go shake him, and they're scared. Lord, don't you care that we're dying? He gets up. Tells the storm to be quiet. 
the winds and the sea stop. So what is the text? Now, the, I'm not saying the psalmist was thinking about the Lord when he did that, but you can't help but connect the two. You rule the raging of the sea. What kind of person is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And then the next uh, verse goes on to say this, uh, You crushed Rahab like a carcass. Now that's not talking about the woman Rahab. Rahab is alluding to Egypt. It was another name for Egypt. It said, You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. They were released, two million Jews released from the most powerful country on earth at the time. They didn't fire a single shot, did they? <laughs> he says, the north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. Those were two mountains. Tabor, a small mountain. Hermon is a bigger mountain. He's saying that all creation praises you and is faithful. The text concentrates uh, on his power in this section, in, in verses 9 9 through 13, he says in verse uh, 13, You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. So, he rules the seas, he rules the mountains, his, uh, he's powerful in his rule over Egypt. Derek Kidner, who was a British Old Testament scholar, stated that the Exodus was a victory as central in the Old Testament as Calvary is to the new. And then in verses 14 through 18, we see uh, God's faithfulness to his people. He says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. What a statement. What a comment. I, 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 I like to use a lot of visual stuff in my Bible, a lot of colored pencils and mark them and so forth. So it just this kind of jumps out at me. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. <clears throat> okay, we've established that God has the power to be faithful, but does he want to be? I think if you look at verse 14, that answers the question. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. I love uh, watch the... Um, clip of Alistair Begg not long ago when he said he was at a church and he didn't feel good, he physically wasn't feeling well, he was not at his church, he said he was just wanted to go to this church, he's going to sit down and just do whatever they tell him to do, stand up, sit down, whatever. And he said the worship leader came out and wanted to know how everybody was feeling and do you feel good and sing the music and how you feel. And Alistair said he had it about up to his eyes. He said, please don't challenge me on how I feel. Challenge me on what I know. What do I know? <laughs> you look at Psalm 89 and we can see how faithful this God that we serve is. How faithful He is. How, how just He is. And see, His justice is based on His righteousness. The reason He can be just is that He's a righteous God. He's a, he is a righteous ruler. We are fickle, are we not? Some of us, perhaps more than others, our feelings and emotions change all the time. Uh, if we live our lives based upon 
upon our feeling and emotions, we are going to be frustrated, fearful, full of guilt, and all the things associated with life before we were believers if we keep our eyes on ourselves or on our circumstances or on our problems. We need to keep our eyes focused upon Him, the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, sometimes it takes a long time for us to learn that we really aren't the center of the universe, that someone else is. And the center of this universe, as we know, is the Lord. Now, the fifth thing we see here is that he is faithful to his covenant. And in verses 19 through verse 29, 11 verses is really a commentary of the first four verses, or we could literally say it's a commentary on the Davidic covenant. Um, <laughs> the first thing we look at is we look at the Davidic covenant. We can go back or we can go to uh, uh, verse 19 and 20. He says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. You remember the story. Saul was a, a horrifically terrible king. Uh, he tried to kill David, tried to kill his own son. Uh, he was forever uh, wayward. And so God told him that the throne would be taken from him and given to, uh, to someone else. And he uh, told Samuel to go to the house of Jesse, and I want you to pick, I want you to look, and I will tell you which one it is. Jesse's first son walks in front of him, and even godly Samuel says, what? There he is. Looks good to me. The Lord says, no, no, that's not the one. We know the story. You go through all of the people, and Samuel says, is this all your sons? And Jesse says, yeah. It's all, well, there is one. He's young, and he's tending the sheep, and uh, I'll get him, but... You know, I guess Jesse's thinking he couldn't possibly be one. And as soon as uh, Samuel sees him, the famous verse that we all know comes about. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. That was his man right there. That was his man. He was chosen by the Lord. And let me tell you something else. He chose us when there was no good in us. If we choose Him, there's going to be a time when we're going to unchoose Him. I'm not sure that's a word, but uh, I think it's true. He does the choosing. I'm going to go on down to verse 21 and see something else that the Lord did for him. He gave David strength for his role as king. Look at verse 21. He says, So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. This is what he did for David. Now, picture this now. The ultimate son coming from David is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you and I look at this verse in verse 21, and we see that the Lord tells David, because of this covenant that I'm making with you, so, uh, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm shall strengthen him, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not 
humble him. What did Jesus say in John 15:5? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think it was Tozer that said, many churches crank out worship every Sunday and they wouldn't have a clue if the Holy Spirit's there or not. Hey, look, you can crank out ministry and the energy of the flesh. If you can talk, if you know a little of the scripture, you can preach, you can teach Sunday school, you can do these things. But the Lord says, without me, you can do nothing. Paul said, I can do all things. And you say, well, Paul is kind of brazen, isn't he? No, i got to finish the sentence. Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I got a, a plaque, not a plaque, just a saying by William Grinnell, and I gave Pastor Dave a copy. Uh, and it says pretty much this, this is very much paraphrased, but when the pastor walks in the pulpit to preach, he doesn't walk alone. He's not here by himself. You say, well, I don't see anybody else. No, it's servant and master working together. Uh, if David is not prayed up and the Holy Spirit of God has infused his life, then, you know, it's just pretty much words. But Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you and I lived in a strictly material world, I think we could reasonably think and make choices, perhaps, and it would be okay. But if you and I want to please the lover of our souls... Uh, it's his wisdom and his will and his desire that we want, is it not? And then I kind of got ahead of myself because in verse uh, 22, uh, not only did God give David strength, but God protected David from his enemies. And that's found in verse uh, 22. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked uh, shall not humble him. You remember what he told Peter when he told the disciples, uh, I've got to go and be crucified. I have to die. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. So Peter rebukes the Lord. And the Lord said, what? Get behind me, Satan. He said, I'm, he said that the devil wants to sift you like wheat. He said, but I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Do we realize that when the Lord Jesus ascended back in heaven, he was enthroned back in heaven for years. He has been praying for us. He's our intercessor. He intercedes for us. The scripture tells us the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So when I pray for you, when I pray for Pastor Dave, and I may not know exactly how to pray or what to pray, don't you think between the Lord and the Holy Spirit, they know Dave's needs, your needs, your wants, whatever it is in your life? And that's the wonderful thing that bonds us together as brothers and sisters of the Lord, is we have the same Lord, we have the same Holy Spirit, do we not? There's a quote by Jim Boyce, and when he said this, it just solidified everything for me. We think about... Soteriology. When did this happen? When did that occur? Uh, uh, when was I saved? Was I, did I have faith first? Was I uh, converted first? Whatever. I love the way he phrases this. 
I think if you catch this phrase, it simplifies everything for me. He made a simple comment, and I thought, and then you go to the verses and you can see it's true. What God does, He plans in eternity. You and I are born at different times, and we're, we're born into time. We live in time. We operate in time. We make plans in time. What God does, He planned in eternity. And what He planned in eternity will be carried out in time. Isn't that good? He creates time so that His plans that He makes in eternity can be carried out. They're carried out in the, the life that you and I live. Every day. <clears throat> One thing that he planned was to bring many sons and daughters into his kingdom. First Peter chapter 18 and verse 20. This is a beautiful passage of scripture. It says this, Knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought back. We were owned by the evil one. We've been ransomed. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with a precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That's God's plan. You see, God plans things in eternity. But he was made manifest, he was openly displayed in the last times for the sake of you. He was planned in eternity to go to the cross. In time, it worked out. Simple. <laughs> simple, to, more simple for me to understand. Not saying that anything that he does is obviously simple. Something else that the, that the Lord told David was, uh, back here in verse 23 of Psalm 89, I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. <clears throat> Don't you love 1 Corinthians 15:56 through 58? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory how does he give us the victory? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Man, we're, we're living for the Lord and working for the Lord, and everything we do is charted. The Lord forgets nothing. He knows everything about us. He knows our hearts. He's looking at our hearts. He's checking us. And nothing is done in vain for the Lord. Verses 24 through 27, not only did God protect David from his enemies 
And not only did he give them victory, but he gave them victory over all other kings. Look at verse 24. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. His horn, his power. David's power will be exalted because of me. Once David comes on the scene, man, is explo- he explodes. He's everywhere. He's a poet. He's a writer. He's a mighty warrior. Uh, but just to show you that this covenant is unconditional, four chapters after God makes that covenant with David in, in, in uh, 2 Samuel 7, he breaks five of the Ten Commandments. Adultery and murder being of the five. And you say, well, how can God... I used to wonder this. How could, how could God pick David? How can he continually say that he's a man after God's own heart? You know why? The same reason he does for us. is God doesn't judge us on legal obedience, he judges us on gracious obedience. Most of your Bible scholars will say it was up to one to two years before David penned uh, what Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 there, where uh, before he got his heart right back with the Lord, uh, he talks about how he was affected spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and until he came to the Lord and totally confessed his sin, he was a miserable person. But God looked at the man's heart just like he looks to my heart and just like he looks to your heart. We see another thing about this. In verses 30 through 37, God says that uh, uh, his, uh, he's going to be faithful in disciplining David's sons. David's son Solomon, after Solomon, the, uh, uh, the uh, Judah and Israel had their civil war, and it was pretty much over. But his covenant is irrevocable from God's point of view. It means it's immutable. It does not change. It's not dependent upon David's actions. God has a covenant with me, with you. He saved us. My salvation is not dependent on me being sinless. If it was, I'd never make it. So God loves us. And he's faithful to us, even when we're not, be, not able to pull off that which we should. But look what God says here, beginning in verse 30. If his children forsake my law, speaking of David's biological children, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn uh, sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Maybe someday I could do the rest of that, because uh, I'm not going any further. Uh, It looks like the psalmist is all of a sudden perplexed 
and puzzled because I think at this juncture is where the kingdom must have broken up. And he looks in verse 38 and says, but now you've cast us off. Oh, no, he hasn't. Uh, let me finish this up, and I've only got a couple of minutes to do this. Okay. Um, since it's impossible for God to lie, he told the Israelites that if they didn't follow him and keep his laws, they'd be punished. From the beginning of the Bible, uh, God is crystal clear that there are curses for sinning and uh, uh, blessings for obedience. Three major reasons, I think, that as you look at Micah and Ezekiel and Hosea, I think there were three major reasons that this kingdom broke up. First of all, <laughs> first of all, man cannot govern himself. Even with the best of intentions, man cannot govern himself. Three great sins were rampant in Israel. Idolatry, immorality, and uh, ingratitude. Idolatry is to insult God and worship something else. And they, Solomon married all those wives and whatever God they were worshiping, they brought it in. Uh, to the temple, and they were just, had turned totally pagan. Immorality. Immorality means you simply indulge yourself. Somewhere in the 1960s, America went through a sexual revolution. The last 25 years, a homosexual revolution. It's right there in Romans 1. Any nation that does that, you can see their, their departure from the Lord. Uh, there's a, I'll close with a passage of Scripture in Ezekiel 14 to show you how bad things really were when the kingdom absolutely dissolved there temporarily. Uh, it's taken from Ezekiel 14, and this is what the Lord said. The Lord said, even if Noah and Job and Daniel prayed, their righteousness could only save themselves. You realize how powerful that that's not that's that's Yahweh, that's God Himself saying these words. He's saying that the three great intercessors, Noah interceded while he's building the boat for a hundred plus years, right? What about Job? He offered sacrifice for his children every day in case they had sinned. He was he was Sacrificing for him. And we know that Daniel prayed for the nation. Three great men that God said, even if they were here, they could only save themselves. Moses was a good one, but the Lord decided to use those three. And that's where we are. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We're grateful that we can look at these few verses for a few minutes in Psalms 89 and see how faithful you are to your covenant. Lord, David is the link between Abraham and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much that you have given us the same victory that has been given uh, to David when he gave his life over to you, Lord. And so we just pray that we would go away tonight refreshed and encouraged because we know a that we serve a God that is so loving and so faithful and so kind. And we'd ask these things in the